thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, in the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul shares with us seven different things that we can take comfort in, and that's why uh, we titled that part of our outline, Comfort. And now we come to a new section this morning, since we finished that last week, and this is titled Collection, and in this section, Paul is going to share with us four important things about giving. First, an example of giving. Second, an exhortation to give. Third, an explanation of giving, and then finally, an encouragement to give. This morning, we're going to look at the example that Paul gives to us uh, of someone who gave very well, and also a portion of this exhortation to give. Now, giving is such an important part of our Christian life. We give of our talents, we give of our treasures, we give of of so many different things. And um, so this is going to be very applicable to us. What we're going to look at this morning uh, is something that each one of us can glean from and hopefully uh, apply to our lives. And so let's start with the example that Paul shares with us on giving, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse One says this, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. So Paul starts off here with a great example in giving in a godly way. And the example that he uses are the believers in Macedonia. Now, if you remember um, Macedonia, if we remember from the book of Acts, that is a region. It's not a city. And so um, Paul is referring to several different churches that were there. Uh, The northern part of Greece is Macedonia. Uh, The southern part of Greece is Achaia. Uh, And so the churches that were there are Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Uh, And so these are the churches. Remember, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians from this region. He is ministering to these churches. He's watching them give in this great way, and so as he's watching that, he's now writing to the Corinthians, and he's encouraging them to give, but he's using the Macedonians as an example of how they should do that. Now, I want you to remember back from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16, Paul refers to what he actually asked them to give to. Now, concerning the collection of the saints, as I have ordered As I give in orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. 
So when Paul writes this first letter and he was doing a missionary journey, he was seeking churches that he had planted, that he had ministered to, to take up a collection for the Jerusalem believers. And the reason that, excuse me, the Jerusalem believers needed money was because there was a huge famine in Jerusalem. The people there were starving. And so the believers were in great need. And so as Paul is traveling around, he's saying, hey, you got brothers and sisters in Christ here in Jerusalem and they're in need. And so why don't you take up a collection? give it to me, and when I travel back to Jerusalem, I will give that money to them. And so he had asked the Corinthians, and he asked other churches like in Macedonia to do this, and now he's giving this example. Look at how the Macedonian church has responded to this request to help the need of other believers in Christ in Jerusalem. And so in these first six verses, Paul is going to give us seven different ways that the Macedonian believers gave. Uh, And it's seven great challenges and uh, and encouragements and examples for how we should give as well. And so in verse two, notice what he says, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Paul starts off sharing with us that the Macedonian believers were going through a great affliction. If you look through history, we find that the Roman Empire were quite severe with this group because this was the birthplace of Alexander the Great, and so they had quite uh, animosity towards this area, uh, and so they were really brutal to them. There was a lot of affliction there. They ruled them uh, much more harshly than other places, and so Paul's bringing up this reality of, of here are these believers and they are living in quite a harsh environment of affliction and yet within that environment they're still willing to give. In the midst of tough times they're still willing to give to others who are in need. And so the first example of the Macedonian believers giving is they gave in tough times. You know, oftentimes when it's difficult for us, when we're going through tough times, our mindset is just kind of, what can I do to help myself? What can I do to take care of my needs? We're oftentimes not focused on what are other people going through? What are other people's needs? How can I give to help someone else? And so it's actually quite an example to say, in the midst of our own struggles, in the midst of our own tough times, we look beyond ourselves, beyond our circumstances to see that there are other people in need that we could still help, and that's what the Macedonians did. So the Macedonian believers were in a great trial of affliction, but Paul tells us something else about them as well. He says that they were also in deep poverty. So they just weren't in poverty, they were in deep poverty. And you know, in our culture here in America, we use this term poverty, but it is nothing in comparison to the poverty that you would have seen uh, in the world at that time, or even as you go into third world countries today, because, you know, those who we classify as in poverty still have a roof over their head, oftentimes even have transportation, a car, you know, so, you know, a job, food, you know, we, oh, they're in poverty, but man, you go into other places and poverty is no home, no food, no job, you know, no hope for existence. And that's kind of the poverty of deep poverty that these people would have been um, suffering from. But, you know, even in the midst of this deep poverty, they're still willing to give to other people who were in need. And so the second example of the Macedonian believers giving is they gave while in poverty. 
You know, if someone were to come to you and ask you to give when you felt like, you know what, I need someone to give to me. I'm in poverty. I'm in need. You know, our response would probably be more like, hey, I got to take care of myself and I have barely enough to make it or I don't even have enough to make it. And so why are you asking me to try to help someone else? You should be asking other people to help me. And so often because we filter so much of our life through our own needs and our own thoughts and yet are we willing to look beyond that as the Macedonians said, yeah, we got poverty, actually deep poverty, but those in Jerusalem are suffering and they have this huge famine and we want to do what we can to help meet that need. And so Paul tells us these two things that they're involved in, this deep poverty, this great trials, but notice what else Paul says about them in verse 2. The abundance of their joy abounded in the riches of their liberality. You know, this is something that I think is just so amazing to see of the example that they gave with. They had joy in giving. You know, I think so often, you know, people, you know, giving is kind of this this word that is associated with a lot of negative things, but yet there was great joy. They, They liked and enjoyed having the opportunity to give to help meet the needs of others. And so the third example of the Macedonian believers is they gave joyfully. They didn't have a rotten attitude. They weren't upset about it. They didn't do it grudgingly. Oh, if I have to, Paul, I will. They took joy in the fact that they, even the little that they had, could help meet the needs of someone else who was struggling. And once again, a great example to us that we would give with a joyful attitude. You know, when we really understand a biblical concept of giving, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Our culture definitely teaches us it's way more blessed to get, 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 get more stuff. But Jesus said, no, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when we get that, we should bring joy to us. Hey, I get to give. It's more blessed to give. I'm taking joy in this opportunity to give to help meet someone else's needs. But Paul goes on to say, not just they gave joyfully, but they gave with liberality. This Greek word translated liberality means generous and liberal giving. And so not only were they joyful in their giving, but they were also very generous in their giving. And the fourth thing that we see as an example from these Macedonian believers is they gave generously. Now, oftentimes we're generous when we have an abundance. You know, okay, well, I got plenty of money or I got plenty of resources. And so I can be generous with what's left over after I take care of all my needs and everything's good and great. Then here, let me be generous with what's left. But that wasn't the circumstance of the Macedonian believers. They were in deep poverty. They didn't have much. This, this was something that we see that even in the midst of that, they were willing to be generous givers, which is a wonderful example to us. Paul goes on in verses 3 and 4 to share uh, a couple more things about how they gave. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Notice this, Paul says, according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability. 
You know, when, when you give according to your ability, you first and foremost look at, okay, here are all my bills. I'm taking care of everything that I have. And now, um, okay, now I'm going to give with what's left over. But when you, and for many Christians, that would be uh, a great thing. It's a great thing to do. Sadly, many Christians don't even do that. But the Macedonian believers went beyond that. They gave beyond their ability, which means that, you know what? Hey, we haven't even taken care of all of our needs yet, but we're still going to help meet the needs of others. What Paul is revealing here is they sacrificially gave. It was beyond their ability. It was a sacrifice for them to give what they were giving. The, the fifth example of the Macedonian believers is they gave sacrificially. C.S. Lewis, the, the great Christian author, wrote many wonderful things, most famously known for uh, the Narnia series. But he writes this, If our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we can't do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. When's the last time you gave to someone else which meant that you had to go without? Not that when you gave and all your needs were met and you were doing fine and then out of your abundance gave. When did you give last where it was really a sacrifice, where you said, you know what, if I give this, then I can't get this. If I give to you, then, then I'm going to go without whatever it is that I would have normally had. You know, when's the last time you've done that? You know, sacrificial giving is, is difficult for us. You know, we, we kind of, we have a good ability to give out of abundance, but when it comes to saying, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice some of my own desires, some of my own needs, and give to others, that's a whole nother category. And we see this great example with the Macedonian believers. Paul goes on to say in verse 4, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. You know, what Paul says here is pretty amazing. Hey, these guys implored us to take their gift. Now, this Greek word translated implored would actually be more accurately translated begged because that's the, what the, the word means. And so Paul is bringing up this reality that they begged us to take their money. Now, this is kind of mind-boggling because as we live in Houston and you drive to pretty much every major intersection, you're going to see someone begging for money. We see people beg for money all the time, but what a shock it would be if instead of the sign that says, you know, I'm hungry, I need money or whatever, it says, I have money for you. And they're going to cars handing out hundreds left and right. You know, I want to give to you. Let me give to you. I mean, we'd be blown away by that because we don't see people begging to give money. We see people begging to get money, but yet Paul says, this group begged him, please take our gift. We desperately want to be able to help those who are in Jerusalem. We want to be a part of this. And it was a heart that was just desperate to give. And I think that is such a, a wonderful thing that we see. And so the fifth example of the Macedonian givers was that they gave or they begged to give. I think the only way you're going to beg to give is when you understand what a privilege what a blessing it is, because it just shows your heart that, hey, I have a heart that's begging to give, not a heart that's reluctant to give. 
And I would ask you, you know, when it comes to giving, what's more describes you? Are you someone who's just begging and can't wait and, and loves to do it? Or are you someone who's much more reluctant and it takes a while for you to get to that place? Now, when we read of these six things, you look at this list and you think, man, that's pretty impressive. An impressive way to give. How is it that these Macedonian believers got to this place where they were willing and able to give in the midst of tough time, in the midst of poverty, with such joy and generosity and sacrifice and such a huge heart to give? How did they get to that place? Well, in verse 5, Paul tells us, And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Notice what these believers first gave themselves to. This is the key. You say, man, I want to grow to be a giver like these people. Well, the first step in that is you must give yourself to the Lord. That is the first thing that they did. The byproduct of giving yourself to the Lord is all these other things. But if you don't first give yourself to the Lord, Lord, here is my life. I give it to you and everything that comes with that, all that I own, all that I possess, all my talents, everything is yours. When you start with that, then everything else flows from that. If you think that you're going to be this great, generous giver who's willing to sacrifice, even in the midst of difficulty, who has a heart that even begs to give without first giving yourself to the Lord, it's not going to happen. The start is, Lord, here am I. Here's my life. I give it to you, everything that that entails. And then it becomes so easy because you realize, hey, it's all his. I'm just giving back to him what already belongs to him. And so they first gave themselves to the Lord. And that was the big thing that enabled all these other six things to actually happen. And so the seventh and most important of all is they first gave themselves to the Lord. So Paul has shared this wonderful example of giving from the Macedonian believers. And he's sharing this to the Corinthians to encourage them. Hey, I asked the Macedonian believers to give to the Jerusalem believers just like I asked you to, and I'm here with them, and let me just share with you the way in which they've done this as an encouragement to, hey, you guys, why don't you do this as well? Notice what he says in verse 6. So we urge Titus that as he begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. One of the reasons that Paul sent Titus to Corinth was to complete this grace, notice he says, in them as well. This term, this grace here, is referring to their giving. Paul uses grace several times in reference to the Macedonians giving and also to the Corinthians giving in this verse. But it's speaking about this giving, which is great because we recognize even in giving, it's a grace of God that he blesses us with this ability to do it. Alan Redpath, a great pastor and commentator, said this about the grace of God in giving. Once you see the matter of giving is centered in this lovely word, grace, it lifts the whole act away from mechanics, from pressure and duty, from obligation and mere legalism. It lifts us up into the most lovely atmosphere of an activity which seeks by giving to convey to others all that is lovely, all that is beautiful, all that is good, and all that is glorious. What a lovely word this word is. For there is no area in our Christian life in which grace shines out so much, so beautifully, so delightfully, and so happily as when giving comes from the background of poverty. 
When you see a believer who is truly generous, you can know that God has done a great work of grace in their life. I'll actually go on to say this. If you want to give a test for yourself or a test for another believer of their spiritual maturity, one of the ways to determine where we're at spiritually, how mature we have become, is the test of how generous are you? How generous are you with your time, with your talents, with your treasures? Because those who spend more time with God, who is extremely generous, as we will see in a moment, the natural byproduct of that is we become more generous. And so someone says, oh, I'm so mature spiritually and so godly, and they're not generous in any area of life, you can know for sure that's not the case. Time with the Lord brings generosity in every area. We see this with the Macedonians. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians. But notice one of Titus's job was to complete this grace of giving in the Corinthians. You see, the Corinthians had said, yes, we would like to help the believers in Jerusalem. So they might have intended to give, and they probably thought about giving. They might have been favorable to the idea. But until they completed it, until they actually gave to those believers, it was nothing. Until the action happened, all the feelings, all the thoughts, all the desires are kind of useless until we actually get to the place of action. And so those things are good. It's good to have a desire. It's good to have thoughts. But if that's all it ever is, and you see people in need, and you go, oh, I feel real bad for them, but you don't do anything, then we've kind of missed the point. You know, God doesn't just want us to feel bad. He wants us to actually take a step and say, here, let me help meet your need. Let me give to you. Let me demonstrate this. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Hey, Titus is there to help you complete what you said you would do, to help you follow through with that desire that you said you had to help these believers in Jerusalem. He's there to help you do that. And so in these first six verses, we have an example of giving. And now we're going to look at this, the first part of this exhortation to give, and we'll start next week with the second part of it. So let's see what we can learn from the first part of this exhortation. Verse 7 says this, But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Now, Paul is saying, hey, there's other areas of your life that you're abounding in, that you're doing really well in. And that's a, a great thing to, to have seen of, hey, you know, look at all these other areas where, where your Christian life's doing well. But don't neglect this one other area. Make sure you also abound in this grace of giving. Paul goes on to say in verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of of others. Paul isn't commanding this. It's not, hey, you have to give to these believers in Jerusalem or else. He's not commanding them. He's wanting these believers to willingly choose to say, yes, I see the need and I want to be a part of helping meet the need. True giving comes not because you feel you have to, but because you want to give out of love. And notice what Paul says, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love. You see, they say, we love the believers in Jerusalem. Really? I'm going to test the sincerity of that by whether or not you're willing to give. Is it just words or is there action behind it? 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 says, 
But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You know, if I say, oh, I love you so much, and I see you have all these needs, and I can meet those needs, but yet I just tell you, you know, hey, I love you, but do nothing, saying, what kind of love is that? You know, let's not just love with our words, let's also love with our deeds, let's also love in truth and actually do something with it. And that's what Paul is saying, here's a valid test of your love, are you willing to give and be an example of love in your giving? Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul has just said, you know what, I'm going to test your love. And I'm going to see if you love by whether or not you're willing to give. And now he shares with us the greatest example of sacrificial giving there ever has been. And that is the example given to us by Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember in this chapter, Paul is using this term grace to refer to giving. So Paul is saying, you know the giving of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so how did Jesus give? Well, he goes on to tell us, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. You know, this is one of the most profound statements that we have in Scripture, especially referring to Jesus. And I just want to take a moment. Sometimes you might read a passage like this and and move past it and not really absorb the, the great depth of what is being said. Though Jesus was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Well, when was Jesus rich? Was he rich when he was born in a stable? No. Was he rich when he grew up in a poor carpenter's home in Nazareth? No. Was he rich when he said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? No. Was he rich when he died and he had to be placed in another man's tomb? No. So so when was Jesus rich? Jesus was rich when he was in heaven. Before he ever came to this earth. That's what Paul is speaking of when he says Jesus is riches. When he refers to the riches of Jesus, he's referring to how rich he was in heaven before he became a man and dwelt among us on this earth. Charles Spurgeon, the great scholar and pastor said, It was great poverty to Christ to be a man. Humanity is a poor thing when you set it in comparison with the deity. When you compare all that Jesus had in heaven versus what he had on earth as a man, you recognize the drastic difference between rich and poor. Before Jesus came to this earth, he was rich beyond what any of us could possibly imagine. And I want us to take a moment just to kind of compare the riches of what Jesus had in heaven versus what he gave up to come to this earth, because I really want us to ponder that reality. What did he give up in coming to this earth and leaving what he had in heaven? Now, when we think of riches, oftentimes the first thing that pops into our mind are possessions. I don't know what possession that you value most, whether it's money, whether it's gold or jewelry or fancy clothes or, or houses or guns, you know, whatever possession that you think is, is super important or all of them together. 
Jesus can create anything. If he wanted to, he could have filled heaven with a million of those things. He could have just spoke them into existence. That's definitely not a problem for him. The Bible says that heaven's streets are paved with gold. The thing that we value most are just the asphalt in heaven. Now, I remember reading an article that a man was so rich that he bought his own island. I mean, if you had your own island, you'd think, man, that is pretty rich. I mean, what if someone owned their own country? You know, we would be even thinking, wow, what riches to be able to own your own country? Well, Jesus owns the world and the universe and all of creation. So nothing and no one is in comparison to him when it comes to riches in possession. Now, for some people, they think, yeah, well, possessions are nice, but what really makes you rich is honor, is fame. You know, we want to be famous. We want to have people, you know, just thinking we're so wonderful. Well, you know what? In heaven, Jesus was as rich in honor and was the most famous one there. All day long, there were creatures surrounding his throne who cry out, holy, holy, holy. There are those who just continually give him honor and glory because of who he is. So he was rich in possessions. He was rich in honor. He was rich in fame. But some people say, you know what, those are nice. But what really makes you rich is power. That's what I'm seeking. That's what I want. That's what I determined to be rich. Well, Jesus was as rich in power as you can be. There's nothing that Jesus didn't have the power to actually do. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we're told, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For those of you who've been coming on Thursday night, maybe you remember that Hebrew word created is bara. Why it's interesting is because it means create out of nothing. God is so powerful that he is able to create out of nothing. We can't. We always have to have something to create something else. But God could create everything out of nothing. That is definitely pretty powerful. But, you know, some people in our world, that they think, well, what really is power is the power you have over someone else's life. You know, the power of life and death is in your hands. That's true power. Well, Jesus has the power uh, much farther than that in his life where he is completely the ultimate judge of the world and all of our lives rest in his hands. So Jesus was rich in possessions and honor and fame and power. But some, you know, I just want happiness. I just want peace. That is what I value. That is what is rich to me. But you know what? In heaven, Jesus was as happy as could be and got complete peace. Nothing surprised him. He knew everything. He wasn't stressed out. He wasn't worried. You know, how are people going to respond to this today? Or or what's going to happen? He knows exactly what's going to transpire. He was a complete peace on his throne in heaven. So when we say that Jesus was rich in heaven, our human language really can't even do justice to the reality of how rich he actually was. He had everything, all possessions, all honor, all fame, all power, all happiness, all peace. And the reason I want us to understand the magnitude of what Jesus had is because I want you to recognize how much he had to give up in order to become one of us, in order to come to this earth. And to help you try and understand that, I want you to imagine something with me. For many of you, this won't be hard. For others, it may be. Imagine there is one ruler on this earth, one person with complete power, one person with complete authority, and that person is you. Whatever you said, people had to do. Whatever you wanted, people had 
to give it to you. All power, all possession, all honor, all fame, all happiness, all peace was yours. Be pretty good, right? Now, imagine you have all that and you've had that for a long time. How hard would it be to give it all up? How hard would it be to give up all of that and then just to become a helpless baby dependent on others? You have everything and you go to what Jesus did in becoming one of us. Imagine what a tremendous sacrifice that would be. That's the huge sacrifice that Jesus did as he left the riches of heaven to become one of us on this earth. But the question I want us to ponder is why? Why would Jesus do that? Why leave everything, all the fame, all the honor, all the power, all the glory, all the possessions, why leave it all to come to this earth and become one of us? What would motivate him to do that? Why would he make that choice? And this is the most important thing of all. Verse 9 tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The answer to the question, why would Jesus leave heaven? Why would he leave all that he had to come to this earth? The answer is you and me. He did it for you. He did it for me. Jesus gave up his riches in heaven and became poor like us so that you and I could have those riches. He sacrificed all the wonderful riches so that we could have them as well. He became poor like us so that we could become rich like him. He left heaven and came to this earth so that we could leave earth and go and be with him in heaven. But you know what? Why? Why do that for us? Well, why would he willingly do that for you and me? Well, the Bible tells us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The motivation behind why Jesus would leave all that he did in heaven and become one of us is because he desperately loves us. His love for us is immeasurable. Jesus desperately loves us, and because he loves us so much, he was doing, willing to do anything he could to save us from our sins. You see, our sin has separated us from God, and the only way to have that relationship back would be for God himself to pay for our sins so that we could now have a relationship with him. But the only way that God could pay for our sin would be to become one of us and take the punishment that our sin Deserved, And that is exactly what Jesus did as he lived a perfect sinless life and then was sacrificed on the cross for your sin and for my sin. He took the punishment that we deserve. He took our sin upon himself so that we could now have a relationship with God so that God could still be just and punish sin. He punished it on Jesus so that we wouldn't have to suffer that punishment. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to conquer sin and death. He did all of that so that you and I could receive the wonderful riches of eternal life and forgiveness of sin and heaven with him. Because if he didn't do it, none of that would be possible for us. He sacrificed himself because he loves us so much, because he wants to have an eternal relationship with you and with me. And the only way for us to receive that is to receive what he has done. 
To accept that He is God, to accept that He died on the cross for our sins, to accept that He rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, to ask Him to come into our life and forgive us of our sins. That is the only way. The Bible makes very clear. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus gave you and I the greatest gift He could, His own life. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. Jesus says the greatest act of love is you being willing to lay down your life for someone else. He demonstrated the greatest act of love for us. He sacrificed his own life for you and for me. This amazing act of sacrificial giving is the greatest proof of Jesus' love for us. He just didn't shout it with words as we already looked at. Let's not just love in word, let's love in action. We can know the love of Jesus because he proved it to us. It's not just the Bible says it, he demonstrated it by giving to us what was most valuable to him, his own life, proving how much he truly does love you and loves me. So Paul uses Jesus' And this amazing sacrifice as an example of giving. Hey, Corinthians, I want you guys to be giver. Look at the Macedonians, how well they did. But you know what? There's a far better example, the greatest example for us to follow in any area of life, and that is Jesus Christ. And look at the example of him. Look at the fact that he willingly gave up everything in heaven to come and become one of us and be poor so that we in our poverty could be rich like he is. That's the example of giving. And as we look at our own Christian lives and we think, man, you know, struggling with this idea of generosity and giving, you know, we really miss it. If we don't recognize that as believers we should be givers, then we don't understand who God is. We don't understand what he's done. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave to us. He is a giver. He is the greatest giver there is. And as we become more like him... One of the ways that that should be seen very evidently in our life is being willing to give of our time, of our treasures, of our talents to others, to God, for his use and for his service. And I want us to stop right there this morning because I want to close as we think of this amazing sacrifice that Jesus has given to us. We're going to just close as the first Sunday of the month and we take time to take communion, which is a time to remember what Jesus has done. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And as the worship team leads us in a song, we're going to have the communion elements passed around. And I just encourage you to to hold on to them. We'll take them together. Uh, This is an open communion, meaning that if you have personally accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, we encourage you to partake uh, of this with us. Uh, But if you have never made a choice to accept Jesus, ask for his forgiveness for your sins, then uh, this is not for you. Just allow the the elements to pass by and uh, just hold on to them. And before the worship team um, goes ahead and leads us in worship, I just want to read a passage of Scripture that just reminds us why we do this. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 25 For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
And so the, the bread and, and the juice that we have are, are symbolic of Jesus' body and his blood that were hung on a cross and that was shed for us to pay for our sin. And we're just going to take a moment to reflect upon that and to think upon that. And I encourage you, if there's sin in your life that you have not confessed before the Lord, take some time right now before we actually partake of communion and just repent of that, ask for God's forgiveness, uh, and then we're going to take communion together. And so let's go ahead and worship the Lord and receive the communion. Thank you.